Gazette Newspapers presents the Parting Shots Podcast. Now here's your host, Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Thank you, Scott Geezy, and welcome to the Parting Shots Podcast. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and CastBox. Subscribe today. Thanks for joining me from the Parting Shots Podcast Studio in Schenectady, New York. But once again, I'm leaving the sports comfort zone to talk news and the coronavirus pandemic. My guest on this special edition of the podcast was a new staff writer for the Daily Gazette for just a short time, from May 2018 to October 2018. However, his impact is still felt, especially with this podcast, since he started them for the Gazette. He moved on to the Keene Sentinel in New Hampshire, where he covered local politics, the Statehouse, and the first in the nation primary. And at the Sentinel, he launched the first podcast, uh, political podcast, at a New Hampshire at the paper called Pod Free or Die. He's now covering politics and business for Business Inside. Please welcome this his own Jake LaHutt. Jake, welcome to the podcast. How you doing, my friend? Hey, good, Jim. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I appreciate you coming on. I'm, before we get into the uh, the coronavirus talk and all that stuff, we, you started this podcast back here uh, during my uh, hiatus from the Gazette. Uh, did you ever think that one day you'd be a guest on this podcast? <laughs> uh, no, especially because uh, when... I was talking, you know, to, to Miles, you know, the editor-in-chief and um, some of the higher-ups about it. We kind of settled on, like, hey, like, this seems like an appetite for local sports here that, you know, is being met in every way in print, but not, you know, necessarily uh, digitally beyond the occasional video we do. So I remember, you know, talking just to some of the sports guys, and you know, we settled on an idea of, like, hey, let's do, you know, um, an episode one week, maybe about, like, Section 2 football, and then the other week we'll do one on, you know, union hockey, and um, clearly, you know, pe- people liked it from the beginning, and I think I only started it maybe like a, a, a two months or so before I ended up shipping off to New Hampshire to cover the presidential race, so uh, didn't think I'd be on my, my athletic involvement is just like a men's hockey league, basically, so. <laughs> well, I appreciate you starting me, it's, I mean, obviously it's taken off and now where it's We've had a couple of name changes, and now we settled on the Parting Shots podcast. Cause I know, yeah, I know, great. I know it once was called a, a Daily Gazette spot, uh, sports podcast, and then it went some other directions. But, uh, I mean, I, I've been trying, you know, most part with sports, I've, I've dabbled in some entertainment, and this is my uh, second uh, news podcast dealing with the coronavirus situation. So, uh, to, yeah. try to, you know, to try to you know, give all kinds of uh, stuff with this. But let, let's talk, well, before we get into that, you, you, we said you were at the Gazette a short time. You grew up in the area. I mean, what, was it, what was it like working at the Gazette for you? Well, I mean, it was, it, was, it was the best. The other thing that was interesting about it was I interned at the Times Union when I was going into my senior year of college. And uh, so it's definitely weird. I'm in that, like, kind of, you know, strange club of people who've been sort of behind both lines. Um, I thought one of the funniest things was that both places um, in kind of a true sign, I think, of a pretty healthy local news environment these days. They have kind of the, uh, the sort of cork board up with what each competitor did compared to your front page and local section and sports section and, you know, editorial page. So they're, they're always looking at each other for, um, you know, what stories they're prioritizing. Obviously, the geographic coverage areas, there's, there's a little bit of overlap, but they're kind of distinct with the Gazette covering stuff more, um, you know, closer to where I grew up and a little more in Saratoga, certainly more out west. So it's, it's, it's just surreal to, to be young and, and writing for, you know, your hometown paper. Um, I mean, there are definitely some weird moments particularly like you're writing about someone doing bad things legally, you know, in a court case, and you might have known them growing up. 
um, being able to uh, sometimes get a little bit more of an inside track on a story because, yeah, I just happen to know the people involved. That's always kind of a bit of a thrill. And then, you know, the other thing I really appreciate about the Gazette um, was, you know, I was really just kind of thrown into the deep end to a lot of pretty uh, serious stories right away. The one that definitely stands out was that horrible... Um, the Pileski baby case where there was this, you know, um, only three or four month old baby who'd gone missing and then it turned out that obviously his mother had basically murdered him and Steve Cook and I were kind of on this from the very beginning and um, it turned into kind of, you know, this pretty much, it was the dominant story on TV news through the summer and um, you know, one of my prior moments was Steve and I t- kind of did, took a step back and did a really big feature just trying to show folks kind of not only the chronology of what happened, but how from, you know, social services to uh, just some kind of basic, you know, societal structures, how these all failed this kid. And, um, you know, uh, we ran on the front page on a weekend, and uh, that kind of became, you know, like the, the big authoritative account of what had happened well before, you know, the courts actually unearthed a lot of the stuff, you know, eight, nine months later. So uh, it was it was, it was was a thrill, and, you know, frankly, I mean, I would have loved to have been around, um, you know, for the foreseeable future, but there was this opportunity to uh, basically just be up close with these presidential candidates and to kind of have a front seat to history in the New Hampshire primary that had popped up. And, you know, that's something I'd, I'd wanted to cover the 2020 race ever since I interned at Politico back in you know, the summer of 2017, and frankly, you know, when I was at the Times Union, that's when 2016 was was happening, and I just had this real strong urge that I kind of couldn't avoid of wanting to, um, if not travel the country for it, at least try to, you know, do something on it, and obviously because of New York's place in the primary calendar, um, you know, that, that that's not something we get uh, too often around here, so it was just, it was, it was a thrill being in the Gazette, I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Yeah, you, as you mentioned, you moved on to the, the Keen Sentinel, and the fact you were around all these uh, presidential candidates, mostly uh, mostly Democrats. I don't know how many. I mean, I don't think um, uh, Donald Trump was coming to New Hampshire. But what was it like? He actually did. I covered a Trump rally when I was right, there. We talk about that later. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that. Stuff. But uh, uh, what was it like talking to, to, to guys uh, to to uh, the two other candidates like Joe Biden and uh, Elizabeth Warren and Andrew Yang? Uh, yeah. What was it like? You know, I mean, what I tell people is they're really normal people who just have a kind of unhealthy amount of ambition. I mean, they all have their own quirks, and I think the thing that's um, I, I really like about the New Hampshire primary format is that they really you really can't hide behind you know a well glossed over TV ad or, you know, pre-scripted stuff. Because ultimately, the way you win people over there is by kind of being thrown into these really intimate uh, scenarios. And um, it was, you know, from the kind of get-go, the idea of starting the podcast over there was that um, we... Sorry, I have a dog shaking his collar here. (laughs) Um, The the idea from doing the podcast there was uh, that... There was kind of this tension between the, the the race becoming nationalized, as they would call it, where um, you know maybe the days of Iowa and New Hampshire mattering were kind of over, and that uh, you know people were just going to read the New York Times or watch CNN or watch Fox News or you know get kind of whatever they were going to get from um, a pretty kind of highly produced you know, bird's eye view. So uh, it was tough going at first, but, 
essentially, they all come, especially in the kind of uh, the exploratory committee phase. Like, I remember that's when I first met Kirsten Gillibrand, where, you know, it's kind of this weird cat and mouse game of like, oh, why do you happen to be in New Hampshire in the October before the midterms? Oh, I'm just supporting you know, the local governor, blah, blah, blah. But through that, you kind of build up sources. Um, a lot of people who run these campaigns uh, kind of fall into two camps. They either left um, a perfectly good job somewhere else to work for a candidate they believe in, or they've been working on high-level New Hampshire campaigns for a long time, they know the state very well, and those are kind of the most in-demand staffers. So once you know a lot of them, um, it, it kind of started falling into place, you know, when we got Cory Booker on the show. The first candidate was Andrew Yang, but when we got him on, you know, he was definitely closer to the nobody territory than where he is now. Um, and that was really cool, because with Yang, it was like him and like one staffer, he showed up to a cafe, and I think most people who were there were there to eat lunch, but he sort of persuaded all of them to get into a corner and hear about, about his book and about universal basic income. And then, then we started kind of climbing up the ladder. So with Cory Booker, I remember um, his mother came to the, to the office when he was doing a series of events in our part of the state. So I met his mom on Mother's Day, and I, unbeknownst to me, I just thought she was you know, some older woman on the staff. And then once he started really going up, I think the best example of where, you know, yes, the normal people, but also you sort of realize, like, oh, man, they're running to be leader of the free world was when Joe Biden uh, came on the show. And there was a lot of back and forth on this. I thought we'd never get him, frankly. I mean, he wasn't even coming to New Hampshire that often to begin with. He was running more of a national campaign. Um even back then, he was talking about how South Carolina was a really important state for him, and he was really trying to kind of balance his chips. But um, I got a feature that looked at Biden kind of mostly through, honestly, the paper's archives, because back in the 80s when he ran, and then again in 2007, um, you know, there was a ton of really interesting information and kind of little tidbits about how he campaigned back then, how he was really beloved, honestly, in the 80s um, in that southwestern corner of the state. So suddenly, I find myself kind of locked in a room with um, Biden's security guy, who everyone thinks is Secret Service, but he actually isn't. Um, but they run, you know, a real tight ship. They basically locked off this entire building that was at the Keene State Library. And I'm, like, in there with the security dude waiting for Biden to finish the rope line where he's doing selfies and shaking hands with people. And that's where I kind of realized, like, oh, man, this is this is kind of insane, you know? I mean, I remember um, when they rolled the TV into the Iroquois Middle School cafeteria when I was growing up to show Obama's inauguration and Biden was there. So to suddenly be, like, you know, two feet from him, uh, in an interview and trying to clip a microphone on him and um, explain to him kind of what the podcast was. Uh, that, that was pretty surreal. So it definitely bounced between, like, the normal little quirks of them as regular human beings and then the kind of, like, you know, pinch moments of the, the historical stakes being really high. Yeah, I remember Biden didn't do well in New Hampshire and everybody thought his campaign was done and now and now he's the leading candidate. Uh, only, you know, only Bernie Sanders is still... In the mix there, were you surprised that Biden's right now on uh, the top Democratic candidate? Uh, yes and no. I mean, so, you know, frankly, like, the plan they laid out um, wasn't crazy in the first place. And I remember that even part of that feature that I wrote um, in the summer of 2019 was kind of about how they weren't really taking New Hampshire very seriously because they didn't need to was basically their argument, and that, that ended up being correct. Um, the thing that I think no one expected was for the consolidation of, you know, Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar to realize that, um, you know, any 
any any further they continued in the race would simply uh, help Bernie Sanders and and not you know and hurt everybody else. So that I definitely didn't, no, no one saw that coming for sure. Um, but you know the, the fact that am I surprised that um, Biden had kind of was able to withstand these you know recurring news cycles of he doesn't have the juice and you know he's lost a step and what's he really doing? But his you know if you look at the numbers, his favorabilities and his approval and his standing in that crowded field never really budged. There was a period where obviously Bernie had that real surge going into uh, New Hampshire that maybe could have changed it. So I wasn't totally taken aback. Um, I think the broader thing that I'm kind of just, you know, sort of still not um, fully understanding of is that there were so many really interesting kind of rising star candidates that were in this race. There were a number of governors who were very interesting. And the, the degree to which a lot of them just didn't even really get get their feet wet, like uh, Steve Bullock, the governor of Montana, for example, who, you know, he's back in the news a little bit in, with the coronavirus happening, but, you know, someone who, who won a, a Trump state and uh, passed Medicare expansion in a deep red state, you know, those kind of storylines I thought were very interesting, but I was always surprised that the public and even the New Hampshire readers who are accustomed to having a pretty high appetite for politics, they didn't really seem to catch on to that stuff. I mean, it was almost like this, um, you know, uh, it was kind of like the chicken and the egg where uh, people would kind of complain about the field being too big and they would use that as justification for not wanting to really fully support someone that early. And that just kind of kept reinforcing. And what that left was, you know, the candidates that had the big um, organizing and fundraising and name recognition in particular, they were all able to kind of keep plowing through while a lot of these other really interesting figures kind of never really got a shot. Um, covering Pete Buttigieg was kind of the most interesting um stretch around like the, you know, I'd say maybe like early, late fall. Uh, I went on his campaign bus and did a, a long feature on that that I was really proud of. And it was interesting to see how, you know, this one guy was able to break through all the noise when all these senators and other figures weren't. Same goes for Yang in some ways. One of the first long stories I did for Business Insider when I arrived here was on uh, Yang's campaign manager because, you know, it was just crazy, I thought, that, like, Kamala Harris and Kirsten Gillibrand and, you know, later on Elizabeth Warren would meet the same seat where even though they had a lot of accomplished resumes, they had interesting things about their biography, they kind of couldn't take that next step from where they were. But Buttigieg and, and then, you know, Yang to a lesser extent, were able to figure something out that the rest of them weren't. And even though they didn't win, I think that that's going to be valuable down the road for understanding, you know, what the Democratic electorate is like now. How to run a campaign in the Internet age, I also think, was kind of where a lot of them stumbled, frankly, that, you know, we can go on this forever, but I mean, the short version is a lot of the folks who are running these things are, you know, in their, like, at the highest levels of the national campaigns tend to be in their 50s and 60s. Um, and they've been around the game for a long time. Obviously, you know, they've, they've seen a whole number of crazy things happen. But, you know, sometimes it's those staffers who are in their 20s and 30s who know a little bit more intuitively about the Internet landscape, about how people consume news now. And I think that you know, the campaigns that listen to those voices more, not saying yes to them all the time, but the ones who really understood that it's not enough just to have a nice ad and to have good lawn signs and to have, you know, the same good list of people who you're reaching out to on the ground in the early states, that you need to kind of go into some weird places. You need to go on podcasts. You need to go on, you know, kind of 
kind of entertainment news because I think the real divide that um, I struggled with, you know, bridging through my coverage there was, you know, you have people who pay so much attention to the news and politics all the time, uh, you know, to the point that it's like a sport. I mean, it's just like, it's kind of the way, if you love the NBA, you know, not only do you love your own team, but you're looking at, you know, who has the good numbers and stats throughout the league, historical comparisons, there are a lot of overlaps to that with politics. And then in the other camp, there's everybody else who, you know, pick up little snippets during the week and it kind of stresses them out to learn about this. They don't like when people are fighting and yelling at each other. So they deliberately try to tune out politics and to reach those voters who, frankly, they're the ones who, you know, they decide late and they vote and they, they can push you over the top. You need to go and find them where they are. And it's not enough, I think, to expect them to just, you know, follow your Facebook page or something and you're good. So that was kind of like the broad story that I thought was interesting. And the fact remained with Biden that he did well with those voters just because they knew who he was before. It was like a pre-existing relationship, you know, with Uncle Joe. And ultimately that has, that has been and continues to be his best asset. Well, let's take a break. As we'll come back, we'll talk about uh, the coronavirus, uh, Governor Cuomo, President Trump, all the how they're handling all this. So uh, let's take a break. And while you're listening to the Parting Shots podcast, with Jake Ludd and yours truly, Ken Shot, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and CastBox. Hi, this is Ken Shot, Associate Sports Editor of the Daily Gazette and host of the Parting Shots podcast. The coronavirus has affected many American lives. To help prevent the spread of the coronavirus, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have the following tips. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue, then throw the tissue in the trash. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects and surfaces. Stay home when you are sick, except to get medical care. And finally, wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. For more information, go to www.cdc.gov slash COVID-19. Follow the Daily Gazette's continuing coverage of the coronavirus online at dailygazette.com and in the print edition. Welcome back to the Parting Shots podcast. I'm uh, Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schein. We're talking uh, news with uh, the former Gazette uh, news writer and current uh, writer, business insider, Jake LaHutt. Jake, let's talk about the uh, situation we're in right now with the coronavirus uh, and how things are going right now. I mean, you've been writing a lot. I think you've been covering some of uh, Governor Cuomo's uh, press daily uh, briefings about it. What's your sense of how he's handling it? It seems like he's earned universal praise uh, around the country, even from his, some of his detractors, uh, and I think, uh, t- you know, personally, I think he's done a great job as, with uh, how he's, you know, as you know, graphics, charts. I mean, it's 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 it spells it out what's going on. It's it's not a pretty picture. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting. On the, just on the PowerPoint front, I, I was at the briefing on Wednesday, and uh, I tried to keep asking Cuomo's staff about just some little details about the PowerPoints so I could put in my story. Uh, which was kind of a, you know, here's what it's like behind the curtain of these briefings sort of angle, and I couldn't get anything. They kept talking about this, the secret sauce of his PowerPoints and how he's used them since the 90s, but they didn't want to give too much away. Um, so that was like a whole, a whole, a whole weird thing. But, yeah, I mean, they, they're definitely uh, they're definitely very effective. 
did I did talk to um, uh, some people who've been on the other side of, of the fence with Cuomo in the, in the political arena. Um, and you're right, he has earned a lot of praise from even former foes. Um, this one guy I talked to, Michael Caputo, was the campaign manager for Carl Palladino back in 2010. And that was that, that campaign was nuts, if, if you'll remember it. Um, it. It was really heated, and I think that was probably the, the, the most... Um, kind of, you know, viscerally intense challenge Cuomo's face from a Republican so far. Mark Bolinaro, uh, the Dutchess County executive who ran against him in 2018, he's praised Cuomo. And it's pretty simple. I think it's because, you know, um, Cuomo has always relished disaster management. And, um, you know, he, he likes to have the windbreaker on and actually, like, you know, doing the briefings, getting out with the first responders, whether it's for a snowstorm or for a hurricane or for some, you know, any, any kind of degree of seriousness, he really believes, and it's true, that, you know, your state government is uh, responsible for keeping you safe, and, you know, we're going to kind of go above and beyond to uh, be competent and let you know, you know, what we know to get through this stuff. And I think the reason why the briefings and his profile has just risen, not just nationally, but, you know, in the story I was doing, it's international. I mean, um, the reason it's risen is because of this contrast to the briefings Trump has done. And it's, it's complicated because, you know, the White House stopped doing the standard daily press briefings that, like, every administration has done. They haven't done them for the most part until this started for the last, like, two years. You know, Sean Spicer obviously became kind of a household name as the White House press secretary. He was gone. The Mooch, you know, Anthony Scaramucci was in there for, like, 11 days. And then since then, Sarah Huckabee Sanders really kind of slow-rolled them to a halt. And most people don't even know who the White House press secretary is now because she's never done a briefing. Her name's Stephanie Grisham. And if you have seen her on camera, it's because you watch Fox. So I think because that briefing infrastructure suddenly went away when there was no reason for it to, it kind of made it harder when the White House replaced them with these meandering, um, you know, often just blatantly misinformative uh, kind of you know two-hour spectacles every afternoon. So what I found was that actually in England, for example, Sky News, which is you know, a huge channel, it's hard to almost draw a comparison to it here. It's like if NBC and Disney merged their stuff and like had a news channel and did all this sports and everything, they carry Cuomo daily, but they don't carry Trump. And uh, there was a French magazine reporter at the, the briefing I was at, because there, there was a huge interest in Cuomo uh, in his news market. So, you know, he's suddenly, I think, risen to this through a mix of simply that disasters are kind of in his wheelhouse. You know, I think it's one of the things he thinks is probably the most important thing about being a governor. Um, you know, and the fact that even though Trump has taunted, um, you know, governors and has alleged that states are selling ventilators out the back door and all this other stuff, Cuomo, for the most part, hasn't taken the bait, and that's because a lot of Americans don't have an appetite for your standard partisan jockeying right now. You know, they really don't want to hear any kind of fighting. They want to know, um, you know, what can keep them safe and where things are going and where things stand, and, you know, I mean, just when it comes down to it, you get that from the Cuomo press conferences. You don't get that for the Trump ones most of the time because the message changes by the day and, and by the minute. And the fact that you know President Trump is more concerned about attacking reporters who ask him tough questions, which leads to the fact that, no, not necessarily the fact, but leads to the 
speculation that maybe Trump does, doesn't have the answers and he uh, just decides to attack reporters. And uh, unfortunately, right. in this day and age, and when Fox News gives you one message and the other news agencies are giving you different messages, uh, it seems like nobody knows what to believe anymore. And you, you hear this fake news yeah. stuff going out. And, and like I said, Fox News, uh, you know, they were uh, saying that this was a Democratic hoax along with Trump. And then you know, now, all of a sudden, they, they all changed their tune. And I think once in these Trump briefings, has he really been serious? And then, but, uh, well, the most, yeah. part, he's just, he's trying to run the show. And, and some people have you know, compared, he's, he can't, since he can't go out and have a, a campaign rally, he's, he's using these as campaign rallies and some networks are finally wising up and they're not showing the whole uh, press conference. Yeah. And, you know, also, I mean, frankly, like, for anyone who, who knows Trump, he actually really likes talking to reporters uh, off the record and stuff. And I think that he does, though, the sparring with reporters, frankly, just judging by his demeanor and then accounting in, you know, historical knowledge about Trump, he seems to enjoy that more than any other part of these briefings. And, like, that's a problem. Um, you know, to, to your point about Fox, I mean, I think it was all kind of fun and games where, you know, that's how that's how the network would approach a lot of things. If you read about Roger Ailes, the guy who founded Fox News, also founded CNBC, um, you know, that's just kind of par for the course. It's like, here's what the mainstream media is talking about. You come to us to get to get it straight from, you know, a more conservative point of view. And, uh, you know, th- th- they would call a whole number of things trumped up by the Democrats or hurt Trump. That's what they do with a lot of things. Uh, the only problem was, I think that, you know, this is killing tens of thousands of people, and, you know, it's going to end up killing hundreds of thousands, um, you know, based on the conservative estimates now. So even with Fox changing their tune, I think that unfortunately, you know, that attitude set a lot of things in motion for people saying, oh, you know, it's okay if I take that trip. Oh, we're going to spring break. Let the kids go to spring break. It's fine. And unfortunately, there are these horrible stories we're hearing about every day. I think, you know, people are starting to have the virus. Uh, affect people closer and closer in their personal lives, and that's a real credibility issue, and I think that's why, you know, from our standpoint, we actually, you know, uh, at least for me especially, I watch Fox a lot during the day now working from home because, you know, their viewership is enormous, um, their viewers are also older, and they uh, have a relationship with the president that is unlike anything we've ever kind of seen in American politics before. I mean, he spends a lot of the early parts of the day tweeting about Fox News. He quotes what people say nice things about him on Fox and Friends. And, um, you know, I don't mean to be kind of hyperbolic here, but um, there's a, a book that came out from James Ponyhosek, who's at the, the New York Times. He's been a TV writer for a long time. And he basically said the better way to think about this isn't like Fox has state-run TV in like a North Korea or something. It's not really that. It's more like a TV-run state where, you know, Trump talks to Hannity, talks to, you know, Tucker Carlson privately, and they kind of lobby him on specific issues. He, oh, he likes to only appear on that network for the most part. So that ecosystem, I think we really can't, you know, stress enough how important it is for not just the image making and all that stuff, but for actual decisions that have been made in the White House and, you know, uh, monitoring kind of how they frame things is actually, you know, for us, an important story for the politics team in and of itself. And of course, Trump with his tweets, I mean, they can be inflammatory as well. And then it's just, it's just nuts. <laughs> yeah. 
know, and it, it, when I uh, first got to, when I entered to Politico in the summer of 2017, this was still pretty early in the Trump administration, and we were, they were just starting to rethink, okay, like, is every tweet a story? And it was interesting to see that kind of change in calculus from, you know, editors who'd been around for like 20, 30 years, and they're trying to be like, you know, we've never seen anything like this, and these aren't partisan people, you know, and they don't want to kind of gin up outrage for the sake of ginning up outrage, um, but they didn't really know how to handle it, and, um, or I just said, it, it was more that they were they were learning how to handle it better than, I think, making every single one into a unique story. So for us at Business Insider, you know, we, we tend to maybe write about a Trump tweet if it's just like actually like making uh, things happen with the government. That's probably the main criteria. We also have a bureau in London and uh, I thank God for them because, you know, they will cover the tweets that come between like 4 a.m. and 7 a.m. our time and uh, they're a lifesaver for anything like crazy that happens during that window, you know. But now it's tough because like, you know, you, you want to give people straight nonpartisan news and, um, it's not easy when, you know, the president tries to make the press kind of a, a competing character in the story and, you know, talks about enemy of the people, all that stuff. So, you know, sort of, sort of tune it out and um, it's definitely a weirder situation than, you know, I've definitely been used to that you else I've been. Well, Jake, where can people find you on Twitter to follow your uh, coverage? Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter at uh, Jake Lahut, L-A-H-U-T. Um, pretty uh, easy to find there um, and then I have a link in my bio to all my stuff that goes up I'm on Instagram and the same thing and um, you know currently uh, I'm just just doing uh, you know 2020 and current hour stuff no podcast or anything but um, I have a, a, a writing website uh, also jakelahut.com where you can find you know those President of Canada interviews and stuff uh, whenever you want to break from this so yeah the, 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 that's, that's where you head to well, Jake, we appreciate a few minutes here talking, Ben, catching up with things. And again, thank you for starting this podcast back when you did. And it's, uh, it's been, God, it'll be two years coming up soon. Yeah, no, it's so exciting to see you grow so much. It's, it's really great. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate you coming on, Jake. That's Jake LaHut. Thanks. Back to wrap up the podcast, which is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and CastBox in just a moment. I'm Dr. Howard Zucker, New York State's Health Commissioner. I'm calling on all New Yorkers to do their part to slow the spread of coronavirus. Everyone, even young people and those who feel well, stay home. If you must go outside, stay six feet from others. This will ensure everyone who needs hospital care can get it. This virus spreads even without symptoms. Stay home and stay safe. Be a part now so we can all be together later. Stay informed at health.ny.gov coronavirus. Back to wrap up the podcast, keep checking out dailygazette.com and the print edition for the latest updates in news and sports on the coronavirus pandemic. That wraps up another edition of the Parting Shots podcast. I'd like to thank business insider, political reporter, and former Daily Gazette news writer Jake LaHutt for coming on. The Parting Shots podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and CastBox. Subscribe today. If you have questions or comments about the podcast, email them to me at shots. That's S-C-H-O-T-T at DailyGazette.com. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Slapshots. The views expressed on the Party Shots podcast are not necessarily those of Gazette newspapers. 
The Parting Shots Podcast is a production of Gazette Newspapers. I'm Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. From the Parting Shots Podcast Studio in Schenectady, New York, good day and stay safe.